Take your Bible today and join me, if you would, in Romans chapter 1. In just a few moments, we'll begin in verse number 8. Romans chapter 1, verse number 8. It was probably somewhere around 1920 that the photograph that I'm referring to was actually taken. It is a picture that, as a, as a young boy, I grew up just thinking that was part of nearly everyone's home. In fact, I can picture it vividly in my own mind on the wall because you just could could grow up recognizing this picture is supposed to be in your house. The photo was taken by a man named Eric Enstrom and he used as the one he photographed a man named Charles Wilden. Wilden is a man that after the picture was taken, quite frankly, went into obscurity. Um, He was paid by Enstrom $5 for the use of his image. And Enstrom photographed him and then the man, though searched for, was was lost to history. We, We don't know anything else about him. I always in my mind, if you said you know, what's, what's the picture? I would have said it's the picture of a praying man, but the picture has a title. In fact, it was back in the early 2000s that the state of Minnesota, where the picture was actually taken, named this photograph their state photograph. But the picture is simply titled Grace. And this might be the image that you have in your mind. Here's the, the picture that I have in my mind when I'm thinking about a praying man it's just a picture of a man whose head is bowed whose hands are folded and he's saying apparently a word of grace before he partakes in his meal it is something that captures that which you and I might readily understand as prayer and as we consider the the life of the apostle Paul we have been For lack of a better term, we have been looking at some portraits of a godly man. So what does that look like? What are the portraits that we might hang that would be representative of a person that we'd say, that person walks with God? That's the picture. That's the portrait. That's what I have in my mind when I think of a godly man. When I think of a portrait, a picture, if you will, of a praying man, the one I just showed you is what comes to my mind. But as we start to look at these these portraits of a godly man, we see that there are some portraits for us that may not have a picture necessarily that you can feast your eyes upon, but there are pictures you can connect your mind to that actually begin to define for people like you and I, what are the pictures, the portraits of a praying man? Your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse number 8. Romans chapter 1, verse number 8. Here the Bible says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God 
to come unto you. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established. That is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. In this passage, what are the portraits that may hang on the wall? Or, or, or maybe to further define, what are the characteristics that the Apostle Paul begins to display for us that are preserved for us by God the Holy Spirit for us to get some understanding, some sense of what are the characteristics of a godly man? More specifically, what are the elements, the characteristics of a praying man? Now, before we go any further, if, if we were to ask the question, how many of you pray enough? I, I don't suspect that it's truly a great question. I, I mean, all of us may feel some twinge of guilt regarding the matter of, oh, I'm, I'm not praying enough. Do you know, I find that someone who wants to communicate with me or me with them, I find any form of communication satisfying. Now, I may long for more, but I will tell you, I am appreciative of any. I find that, that when I, not often enough, but when I pick up the phone and I call my dad, there is a man on the other end of the phone who longs to hear from his son. When, when I text and just reach out to my mom, Man, I'm telling you, I can text some people and it's days before I hear back. But not my mom. Why? Because there's a person on the other end that longs for, is, is so excited about the fact that someone they love actually has reached out to them. And I do believe that there is some sense that we, we need to understand that when we come and we commune with God, there is a recipient on the other end that is grateful for the opportunity to commune with you and you with him. And I suspect there, there should be some reciprocal aspect. Like, Father, I, man, I, I've been so busy and caught up in the day-to-day the -day, you know, ebb and flow of life, but to spend some time with you. What, what does this start to look like? When we start to break down these characteristics then of, of this praying man. You know, the first thing that I note, and this is a small thing, and I, I don't want to make too much out of this, but I think there is something to it. Every word matters, right? There are no lost words in Scripture. There are no filler words. And so notice what happens in verse number 8, Romans chapter 1. First... I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And then he starts to unpack his prayer. But he starts out with, we're going to look at this characteristic of, th this is a passionate prayer. His prayers were passionate. And you say, how do you, how do you get that from, from this little example or this statement in prayer? Well, okay, think through who is it that we're, that we're looking at right now. Well, this is the apostle Paul. This guy has one of the most profound, powerful minds that we know of, whether in or outside of the Christian faith. His logic is precise. His doctrine is sound. His methods are understood. But with all of this, he is not beyond the reach and realm of human emotion. 
This is not a man who is, is simply the intellect and that's, that's it. This is a guy that also feels something that is bound together with his intellect. Have you ever noticed in this passage of scripture that the Apostle Paul never follows his first with a second? Now he does this in other places. He starts to build this logical progression first and then and, and so on. And he'll build one upon the other upon the other. But here he says, okay, first, now when you use the word first, you're saying, okay, I'm going to start here, but then I'm going to go to. How many of you have ever been in conversation before where you forgot what your conversation began with because something took over your conversation? Do you ever say something like this? Okay, so what were we talking about? Now that happens more the older you get, just so you know, okay? Where were we driving? I have no idea. Okay, so... It does start to happen a little bit more frequently. But isn't it interesting? You can have a conversation and you're engaged in conversation. And then you say, okay, first. And then you start talking and then something captivates your mind. First. And then Paul starts to talk about a people that he has never seen before. But they are constantly in his prayers. He's never sat down and broken bread with them. He's, he's never wept at their parting. He's never said, oh I, oh, I hate it that you're leaving. He's never had any of that before. But Paul is connected emotionally with a group of people that are always before the throne of God in his heart and mind through the means of prayer. It appears that what happens to Paul is he's so deeply connected to the people of Rome, people that he's never met, that he begins something and he is then kind of carried along with the thought and he never comes back to, here's where I'm going next. I know the Holy Spirit is the one who orders this whole thing. He's the one who who details this, but he's using the human instrument of a man who understands there is something passionate that is fueling his prayers. Romans 1.8, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. His prayers were passionate, but by the way, might I add, don't take this to mean that they were not also proper. In fact, he takes special care to demonstrate that his prayers were within the boundaries of what God calls acceptable prayer. If prayer is not done within what we might refer to as the boundaries of prayer, it's actually ineffective. Notice how careful Paul was to mention through Jesus Christ. Don't take this as a little aside or something that's unimportant. Here's this guy who's passionate about his praying, but he's not not improper with that prayer. So God, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, the human instrument, says, I thank God, and let me tell you how, through Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever watched an incredible uh, football game unfold and your team just has this, this play that is phenomenal? I mean, some pass in the end zone and a catch, a reception that's just like it's mind-boggling, jaw-dropping or some run that defies the laws of physics and this guy is moving and, and it's just like, oh, that was incredible and you're all excited until you see this guy in this strange striped shirt takes this this really hideous yellow flag and he throws the flag and and the whole thing is null and void because 
in some way, shape or form, they went outside of the boundaries of propriety. They went beyond what was an acceptable play and therefore the whole thing is called back. I don't know that it's a great illustration, but there are some things we should understand about what makes your passionate prayers proper. Well, that is who are you going through? Do you know there is something about our prayers? I I do believe you can address any member of the Trinity. But I also believe that, that Jesus himself left us a pattern for us to understand about what's the normal aspect of my prayer. Paul understood that he was praying to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. All three parts of the Trinity are involved in our prayers, but typically when I pray, my typical prayer, it's not that I don't ever address Jesus Christ. It's not that I don't ever call upon God the Holy Spirit, but as you know, my normal prayer is not, uh, Jesus, I pray that you would, because I'm coming in the name of Jesus to God the Father in the power of his Holy Spirit. Certainly, we can ask amiss. James chapter 4, verse 3, ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. When we ask amiss, God does not honor the request. However, there's much praying that, that we might say is not really praying at all. Have you ever used someone's name to get something or get access to something else? Use the name. Have you ever gone in and and gotten something? I mean, when you were a kid, did you ever go in and get something and your brother or your sister says, hey, you can't have that. And you look at them and you say, "Uh uh-huh, mom said, okay. And then the heavens open before you, you know. Well, why? Because you just used the name and and that name matters. Maybe somebody at work and, and you're doing something, you're working on something and someone else, you know, someone that, that is on, in a sense, the same work level as you. They say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And then you say, yeah, 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 so-and-so said. And when you use that name, there is an understanding of access, of, of responsibility of, oh, okay, I didn't know that they said. The name of Jesus Christ. It's why we address God through the person of Christ, in the person of his spirit. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 14. In my name carries the idea of asking that which is consistent with himself, what he himself would ask. And we ask it now with full authority. Paul was praying passionate prayers to God through the Son in the Spirit. But let's go beyond that. Yeah, I do believe his prayers were passionate. We can see that all throughout his praying. And in one little indication, first, and then he, he forgets all about everything else. He is praying. He unpacks for us what does this look like. But look at verse number nine. His prayers were not only passionate. These are personal prayers. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul says, for God is my witness. First of all, this means that God knew the reality of Paul's prayer life, even when others may not. When Paul prayed, he was taking at times before, he's talking at times before men, I mean, certainly there are times when Paul's praying and he is praying before people. 
But always Paul is talking first and foremost to God. Listen, if, if your prayers in front of people are more for the people than they are for the God to whom you should be addressing, you are not really praying to God. Now, there is something about Paul's prayers that we constantly see. This is a personal conversation that we have the opportunity to join in or we're privy to right now. We're listening in to one who's actually having a conversation, maybe on our behalf or with us, but he is talking to God. You and I are part of conversations that others are having all the time. I'm not talking about someone who's sneaking in or eavesdropping. I'm talking about someone who is sitting there as part of a larger body and we listen to two people conversing and we're just standing there enjoying the benefit of their conversation. And that's public praying. But Paul is not praying to people to be heard of men. He is praying to be heard of God. There's something personal about his prayers. Matthew chapter 6, verse number 5, Jesus told us this. He said, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward They were seen of men, but that is all the further their prayers went. When you and I pray, there should be some sense of the closet first, of the private aspect of prayer first before there's the public aspect of prayer. But thou, Matthew chapter 6, verse number 6, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, Pray to thy father which is in secret and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Well, Paul's prayers were passionate. They're personal. But let's continue to go on. His prayers are also seen in verse number nine. And notice what we we find here. For God is my witness whom I serve with with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul's prayers were persistent. Without ceasing, I am praying for you. Without ceasing, they they communicate exactly what the word means. It means without intermission, incessantly, without ceasing, I am praying for you. Jesus left us a parable to help us understand the necessity of urgent, persistent prayer. The, the story is, is told in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. We're not going to read the passage, but it's the story of a man who had a friend come to him and he shows up late. Have you ever had friends that show up late? Okay, this guy comes at midnight. So he shows up at midnight, knocking on the door. The friend opens the door and he's like, oh, wow, come on in. And um, hey, have you had anything to eat? No, I'm famished. Um, okay, let me see what we have. And, and he doesn't have anything. So he says, hang on just a minute. I'm going to go to my neighbor and get something to eat, okay? So he goes to his neighbor's house, knocking on his neighbor's door. It's midnight, okay? And the neighbor, you know, kind of get him like, what? I need some bread. I mean, he just goes back and goes to bed, seriously. And the guy comes back again and he keeps knocking. Like, hey, I really, I need some bread. I'm in bed. Hello, get get it in the morning. He goes and he goes back to bed and he keeps knocking. He says, seriously, come on, I need some bread. I know you have some bread. 
you're my friend. He says, I don't care that you're my friend. Let me tell you why I'm going to get you the bread. Because we're friends. No, because you keep knocking. That is exactly what the passage says. He says, not because he's his friend. He says because of his importunity. Because he keeps like, okay, you keep pounding, you keep knocking, you keep asking. Do you know he goes on and he says, listen, if a son asks his father uh, 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 some bread, is he going to give him a stone? If he, if he asks him, okay, hey, uh, dad, do you have any fresh eggs? Is he going to give him, oh, here, have a serpent. Okay. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give to those who ask? And do you know the point he's trying to make? He says, you better keep asking. So ask and ask and ask and keep knocking and keep knocking. And Paul says, listen, without ceasing, I am continually bringing your name before God the Father. It's not friendship in the human level. And you know, if, if we get it, like, okay, we would do this because they keep asking. Well, God is the one who says, listen, you are my friends. I hence, henceforth, I call you not servants. I call you friends. Do you know, you and I get to now use another name beside friend. We get to use the word and we use it in church all the time. We say, hey, brother. Hey, sister. And now we get to address God Almighty as Father. How much does this good God desire to give those who ask of him? You say, well, sometimes, you know, I I know I should keep praying, but sometimes I just don't feel like it. Like, I don't feel sometimes like praying. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you get to the place where at times it's like, I know I should pray, I just don't feel like praying. A man named J. Sidlow Baxter was a pastor who understood the challenges that he and others like him faced. He understood the challenge that exists between our intellect and our emotions and our will. And the part that they're playing in accomplishing whatever we set out to do. Listen to what J. Sidlow Baxter wrote. It's rather lengthy but quite interesting. As never before, my will and I stood face to face. I asked my will the straight question, will... Are you ready for an hour of prayer? Will answered, here I am and I am quite ready if you are. So Will and I linked arms and turned to go for our time of prayer. At once, all the emotions began pulling the other way and protesting, we are not coming. I saw Will stagger just a bit. So I asked, can you stick it out, Will? Will replied, yes, if you can. So Will went and We got down to prayer, dragging those wriggling, rambunctious emotions with us. It was a struggle all the way through. At one point, when Will and I were in the middle of earnest intercession, I suddenly found one of those traitorous emotions had snared my imagination and had run off to the golf course. And it was all I could do to drag that wicked rascal back. A bit later, I found another of the emotions had sneaked away with some off-guarded thoughts. At the end of that hour, if you had asked me, have you had a good time? I would have had to have replied, no, it has been a wearying wrestle with contrary emotions and a truant imagination from beginning to end. Well, the battle continued for some time. And if you asked me, have you had a good time in your daily praying? I would have had to confess, no, 
At times it seemed as though the heavens were brass and God too distant to hear. And the Lord Jesus strangely aloof and prayer accomplishing nothing. Yet something was happening. For one thing, Will and I were slowly teaching emotion that we were completely independent of them. And let me read that line again. Will and I were slowly teaching emotion that we were completely independent of them. Also, one morning, just when Will and I were going for another time of prayer, I overheard one of the emotions whisper to the other, come on, you guys, it's not useful wasting any more time resisting. They'll go just the same. That morning, for the first time, even though the emotions were still suddenly uncooperative, they were at least quiet, which allowed Will and me to get on with prayer without distraction. Then another couple weeks later, what do you think happened? During one of our prayer times, when Will and I were no more thinking of the emotions than the man on the moon, one of the most vigorous of the emotions unexpectedly sprang up and shouted, hallelujah, at which all the other emotions said, amen. And for the first time, the whole of my being, intellect, will, and emotions was united in one coordinated prayer operation. Do you know at times we are so quickly led by our emotions that intellect and will simply stumble along. Emotions are, are a wonderful part of your existence, but God never intended for them to lead. Emotions are always called to follow. How will you ever be persistent in prayer? Seldom, I suspect, by being led by emotion. All throughout scripture, we understand the necessity, the urgency of persistent prayer. Praying always, Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching there too with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Colossians 1, uh, Acts 12.5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. What are you praying for? Maybe an even more important question is, who are you praying for? This is an aside, but, but isn't it also interesting that while Paul certainly does pray for himself, so often his prayers show a depth and a maturity because they have moved beyond the circle of self. And that circle has, has now begun to include so many more, even a church at Rome that he's never seen. Is there a child, a spouse, a parent, a friend? Is there a need, a loss, a hurt, a situation that you need to rekindle in prayer, bathe it in prayer, continually bring this before God the Father without ceasing in prayer. I was at the airport yesterday 
And I called him because I was thinking about him specifically with, with this matter of persistent prayer. He's an old friend. There are people in here that know him. His name is Pete Cook. When I was a youth pastor at Campus Church years ago, Pete Cook and I would sit at men's prayer breakfast on many mornings and we would pray. And always one request we would pray for was for the salvation of Shirley, Pete's wife. And there were many, in fact, there were evangelists that came and they, they would find that we are praying for Shirley Cook to be saved. And, and I remember one in particular, listen, take me to her, I will lead her to Christ. Well, that, that shows the reality that there's only one that can do the drawing and the confirming. And, and it wasn't this evangelist. And she was not saved. And so year after year after year, Pete came to know Christ back in the 1960s. And he began at that time to lift up Shirley before Almighty God in prayer. We prayed together, he, he prayed daily, he prayed consistently, he prayed persistently. He prayed for 37 years for his wife. 37 years, it's hard for us to even process, praying for something every day, constantly throughout the day, night and day, praying that Shirley Cook would come to know Jesus Christ as her personal savior. She was not only resistant, she was hostile to the gospel. A person that she actually said, I don't even like him, came. And God the Holy Spirit broke down barriers that had existed for 37 years. And do you know that the tears that ran down Pete Cook's face when his wife that he had prayed for day after day after day came humbly before God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ and now was indwelt with God the Holy Spirit and Shirley Cook was gloriously saved. Pete said this, he said, the Bible says to, I said, you prayed for her for over 30 years and his simple answer was, the Bible says pray without ceasing. So that's what I did. Pete is today 87 years old. His wife is no longer with us here. But Shirley Cook is in heaven. And you cannot detach her salvation with one who prayed night and day that she would come to know Jesus Christ. What, what, is a, what does a praying man look like? What is that portrait? Well, that portrait looks like someone who is passionate and personal and persistent in his prayers. I will just mention these, these last two because they're part of the picture that makes up this portrait of a praying man. His prayers were practical. Look at verse number 10. Making a request that by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey, here it is, by the will of God to come unto you. Do you know these are practical prayers and he's praying in the will of God. He says, God, listen, you check my desire with yours. Because I want this, but I don't want this outside the will of God. Paul consistently through his prayers, he attaches this little expression, the will of God, if by any means, if it's the will of God, and this will we do, if God permits. Paul keeps, keeps all the time encouraging himself with, I want this, but God only so far as this is your will. 
That is a practical connection to to godly praying that submits our will to his own. Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. You say, okay, all things are possible, so I can pray about anything. You can pray about anything in the will of God. How many have ever had someone tell you they knew what God was going to do? I know what God's going to do. This is the will of God. We, we had a couple that, that we've known for a lot of years. They have nine boys. Nine boys. Okay, when she was pregnant with her eighth boy, someone came up to them and said, God told me that you're going to have a girl. And God has revealed to me. And they looked like, oh, wow. Well, he hasn't told us, but okay. So eight boys. I mean, odds are, you can look at that two ways, you know. I mean, after eight boys, I mean, no, let's, let's plan on another boy. Or you could say, come on, finally, we're going to get a girl. Some of you girls are sitting out there saying, yes, finally. <laughs> okay, so, so they're just saying, hey, you're going to have a girl. Well, lo and behold, you know, they had a boy. And we stoned the prophet. No, we, we, we didn't do that. <clears throat> okay, the point is that, you know, sometimes a person says, I know the will of God. And sometimes we might presume to say, I know the will of God. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I, I want all of these things to be put underneath the umbrella of, because I know I could be off on this. I might have missed something. God, I am praying this in your will. 1 Corinthians 4, 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will. James chapter 4, verse 15, for that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. This was a, a practical prayer. And then the last thing, his prayers were powerful. His prayers were powerful. What made them powerful? I suspect nothing more and nothing less that they were real prayers. Real prayers. We sometimes hear that the most feeble, the, 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 the most timid, the most weak Christian has some resource available to him through the means of prayer that even the gates of hell cannot stand against. Well, why were Paul's prayers so powerful? Because they're, they're real prayers. That's nothing more and that's nothing less than is available to you and available to me. For God is my witness whom I serve in my spirit and the gospel of his son without ceasing I make mention of you in my prayers. Do you know there's something powerful that's happening to the church at Rome, to Paul who is not there but saying, listen, I just want you to know I am praying for you. There's something powerful that's happening to these people. May our prayers be marked by the reality that we are speaking with the God of the universe who takes delight in hearing and answering our prayer. There may be many substitutes that you can use to make something work. You sometimes in a kitchen, a, a person cooking say, oh, I don't have that. I can substitute this for that. And, and I can put this in the place of. There are no substitutes in the Christian life for prayer. None. Do you want to, to walk with God? then you and I must talk with God. What picture do you have in your mind of a praying man? 
when I was in college, I was working with the teenagers as part of the campus church youth ministry. I was a college student and, and I worked in the youth group. The youth pastor at that time was a man by the name of Jim Shetler, who later became the pastor at Campus Church. So I got to know Pastor Shetler as a college student and, and I worked in the youth group and I did a lot of activities. I, I, I immersed myself in the youth ministry because I was studying for youth ministry. I went on to, to later become youth pastor at Campus Church. And so I had really wonderful on-the-job training with the youth pastor, Jim Shetler. We had gone on a teen retreat, a weekend retreat, and I went as, as part of the, the, the youth staff, the team that was there ministering to teenagers. And, and we had a, a wonderful weekend retreat. And the kids are leaving now. We're back at the church parking lot and parents are picking up kids and, and I'm sweeping out the bus and cleaning up stuff. And, and, and I didn't see Pastor Shetler. I didn't know where he was. And, so I'm, I'm finishing up and, and the kids are all gone. And, and I walked into a building. We, we called it the annex. Some of the old timers here will remember it. The building is no more. It's, it's gone to glory, okay? But, but I walked into the annex and, and there were chairs, metal chairs set up in there. And we, we would meet and have Sunday school and such. And, and I walked into the annex and, and I didn't see anybody. But when I walked in, I said, hey, Pastor Shetler. Because I'm looking for him. I don't know where he is. And, and his head pops up from the middle of the, the metal chairs. And his head pops up from the chairs. And, and he looks and he says, oh, I'm sorry. And, and I said, no, 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 I'm sorry. Because I knew he'd been praying. And I, I caught him. It was just a, like a snapshot. I mean, he, we, we'd laughed together. We'd done activities together. We'd had a great time, a great weekend retreat. But I caught him and... When he stood up, he stood up and, and there were tears that just filled his eyes and running down his face. And I said, I'm so sorry. He said, no, 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 it's okay. I just was praying about some things from the retreat. You know, there's a lot of things that have etched into my mind over a person that I have a large amount of respect for. But there's nothing that will replace a picture that I have. It's the picture, the portrait, if you will, of a praying man. I wonder if people had opportunity to catch us in some of our quiet moments. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the portrait that we have the privilege to leave with them is the portrait of a praying 